Welcome to FF Plus, a new spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. Here you will find a little bit of everything, from what's been entertaining us, the trailer reactions, industry hot topic conversation, and even film award predictions. We hope you'll enjoy this addition to the Feelin' Film lineup. Now, on to the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of FF Plus. On this episode, we sit down to talk with both the creator and winners from the recent online film festival called Cyber Shorts. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. All right, up first, we chat with one of the creators behind the festival itself, Daryl Armstrong. Hi, Daryl. Good to have you on. Thanks for uh, having me. Well, we're excited to talk to you and the winners of this festival. So before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, personal background, filmmaking or supporting film? Sure. I have been writing film criticism for, I don't know, I guess about almost 20 years now. I've written for Bright Wall Dark Room. I've written for Film Inquiry. And I'm the managing editor for original content for Rise Up Daily. We cover film, we cover music, we cover video games, all that sort of stuff. So um, not since high school have I made any original film, but I'm a lover of film and I write about it all the time. My partner in the festival, Shahab, he is a short film director. So he's directed a short film based on a Philip K. Dick story and a few other short films. So he was the perfect partner to bring on board. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this particular film festival? Because it seemed very different from the ones that I know I've heard of in the past. In fact, I think it you called it Cyber Shorts, a VR experience, I think is the official name, or a VR film festival. So tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, Cyber Shorts, a VR film festival. I work in advertising and marketing for my my day job. And I had been working with author Matt Ruff, who uh, his last novel is being adapted into a series on HBO, Lovecraft Country, coming out in August. Uh, His new novel, 88 Names, is based in virtual reality environment. So I had been working with him on his new novel book launch, and we wound up using VR platform. It's called Altspace VR, Microsoft owned. And we had done a, a live reading with him on that platform. And as we've gone through all the technical details, figuring out what could be done on it, I started thinking this would be a perfect place to host a film festival in a VR environment. And this was just when the shutdown was happening with COVID. And I was watching all these other film festivals being canceled. Um, Some of them were moving to online. And I thought, you know what, we could do something like this for short films. You know, a lot of the, the, the bigger film festivals were moving online themselves, not in VR, but through YouTube or, or Zoom or whatever they were using. But a lot of the, the short film festivals were scrambling to try to figure something out or just being canceled altogether. And I thought, we could do this. So I, I, I talked to my friend Shahab, who, who I work with, and he took a look at their capabilities. And he's like, yeah, let's let's go for it. 
So the idea was to give independent short filmmakers some sort of outlet during this time where we were all confined at home. And that was basically the, the origins of it. And uh, we just we just started making it happen. So it sounds like this is the first festival to actually use this type of format. I mean, I know that I've been to a handful of film festivals, obviously live screenings, and then with things moving online, did you hope to kind of capture a kind of a community experience with having other people in that VR environment? Yeah, that that was one of the things we were thinking about when we were watching other film festivals move to you know, YouTube or Zoom or, or these other online outlets, there still isn't the kind of communal experience because you're sitting there and watching it on your laptop or if you have it hooked up to your TV, but you're still not really interacting with people. With the VR space, we could basically simulate a theater experience. So you have other avatars, these other people with you. You can interact with them. Now, we had them muted while the films were screening, but during our intermission, before and after, you could actually talk to other people and have this more communal experience that, that kind of simulates the experience of, of going to a theater. So that, that was one of our selling points, I guess, and, and something I thought was really awesome. And there had been a couple other film festivals done in, in, in VR spaces way back in early 2000s. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a platform called Second Life. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So they had actually done a film festival on that platform back in, I think it was 2006. And then uh, Microsoft had organized a short film festival on the Altspace VR platform last year. But as far as we can tell, it didn't make much of an impact. So we weren't the first to do it, but we're one of the first. And uh, that was really exciting as well, because there are some film festivals geared towards showing films in a VR environment. We have to put on your goggles and, you know, then you can watch the film. But this was one of the first film festivals where you can sit at home either use goggles or just on your your computer and watch films in a VR space. So that's really interesting because I know that a couple of years ago during the Oscars there were a couple of shorts that were created specifically in VR and I got a chance to watch one of them just as a standard story and both of them were animated of course but I got to watch one of them specifically in VR and it's pretty mind-blowing just to be sitting in particular positions to watch the movie take place. But I'd never actually experienced being a part of a virtual audience at that point. And it sounds like this is something that could take off, not necessarily because of COVID, although <laughs> that was definitely a great motivator. You know, everything was kind of falling in place. And I still haven't been to the theater since, I don't know, February sometime. And, you know, I love movies, love going to see movies, and I definitely miss it. And I was looking ahead and thinking, you know what, this is something I can do. Now, we, could, we couldn't show feature-length movies because uh, we were trying to put this together fast. And to do that would have included tons of licensing and, and legal stuff that was honestly above our heads at the moment. But we thought we could put together a film experience for people with short films, you know, indie filmmakers, 
and give them an outlet to show their films and give people an outlet to go and view something that kind of recreates the experience. So as far as the movies that were that were screened, was there a criteria for the types? Did you have categories of genres or was it really anybody that wants to submit can and then everything got screened? Did you have a, pardon the pun, a screening process to get the short films in? Yeah. So we limited short films to 15 minutes or less. We allowed music videos and it could be international films as long as they were subtitled in English. And any film, I believe it was any film made after 2015. So we opened it up pretty widely just so we could get, get as many entries as we could. And and I was super pleased with the entries we got. We got some amazing short films. We got some amazing music videos in there. A couple of the music videos actually won. I, I was super impressed by the visual creativity a few of those had. We had criteria, and then we had a screening process, and then once it, it was done with that screening process, we sent it on to our panel of jurors. And, and we actually had a pretty impressive panel of jurors. We had a independent filmmaker, Emmy winner, Kelly Schwarz, who is based in Las Vegas. We had a freelance film critic, Blake Collier, and we had the editor-in-chief of Film Inquiry. And those were our panelists. So once the we had screened the films down to, I think we had 20 films up for competition, uh, our jurors took a look and, and did their voting. And that's how we came up with our winners for best film, best director and best screenplay. And those were the major categories that were that were awarded, correct? Yes, that's correct. OK, so of the 20, were all 20 screened during the festival? Yes. OK, yes. OK. Uh, the 20 had narrowed down to were screened during the festival. How many how many entries did you have total before the the culling down to the the comp, c- competitors? So I believe we had somewhere in the mid 30s. And this was I I've been to a few film festivals myself and you know sometimes what you see screened there is um and I don't want to knock anybody who puts the time and creative creative energy into into making a film but some of it isn't isn't the best stuff but we wound up with what i thought i mean it was really hard to narrow the choices down because we had to narrow it down to basically 2 hours people's headsets if they're on vr they need to charge them after a certain amount of time so we tried to keep our live that's why we did short films as well keep our block to to 2 hours and it was it was super hard just to narrow it down to to two hours worth of films. Sure, I mean, I imagine being able to see a lot of that talent. You you want to be able to show everything, which kind of leads me to my next question: What's the future of Cyber Shorts? Is this the first of many, or was this kind of a one off to help those dealing with COVID? What's the What's the plan for the future? Well, we had almost three hundred attendees which for the platform Altspace VR is a huge, huge event. So we were really, really pleased with the turnout. Like I said, we, we were pleased with the 
quality of of films that were presented for it and we we had some really cool sponsors i want to give a shout out to paul christian glenn from compendia pictures He, he helped as a sponsor for it response was amazing i don't see any reason why we're not going to do it again next year all right, two more questions. One, this is a question we always ask anybody we interview. The premise behind our podcast is we take a look at movies that make us feel the emotional takeaway as opposed to the technical. So what I want to ask you is, is there a movie that you emotionally resonate with more than any other? I think I would go with Lawrence of Arabia. It's a film I, I would say is one of my top 10 favorite films. Emotionally, I I certainly resonate with it. It, You know, in in the fact that the main character, Lawrence, he's he's driven, he's passionate, he's curious, but it's almost like he doesn't entirely know what he wants. And emotionally, that that resonates with me. I feel the same way a lot of times through <laughs> through life. Yeah. You know, I get passionate and driven about things, but but sometimes the the idea behind it is a little uh vague or I can't pinpoint it myself. Yeah. So emotionally that that kind of resonates with me. That's cool. Honestly, it, I guess it it shifts from season to season depending on kind of what's connecting yeah. with you. And uh and Lawrence of Arabia is a great pick. All right, Daryl, where can people find you online or where can they get in touch with you if they want to find out more about this film festival or what you're doing as far as film criticism? Are you available on the social webs? Yeah, we we have a uh, Twitter account for the film festival set up, uh, CyberShorts, at CyberShorts on Twitter. We haven't set up a standalone website for it yet. We wanted to get this first one done kind of almost as a proof of concept. And I think we proved the concept. So like I said, uh, next year, hopefully it'll be bigger, better. You know, we'll have a full website. You can find my work, like I said earlier, uh, written for Film Inquiry, Breitwall Dark Room, and then riseupdaily.com is where I sometimes write and often will edit other film criticism and and music criticism and, and whatnot. Fantastic. Well, you guys give him a follow, give uh, the Cyber Shorts Twitter account a follow, and we hope to hear more from that festival in the future. And uh, it's a fantastic first entry. And we're excited to talk to the winners here in the next few minutes. Daryl, thanks for joining us on this edition of FF Plus. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Patch. All right. Next up, we talk with Elvert Beñeres, the best screenwriter winner for his film Dreams Aren't Made by the Wind. Hello, Elvert. We're glad to have you on. Hey, Patch. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. It's good to have you here. So to get started, uh, congratulations. It's always a great feeling when you're when you're recognized not only for having a, a great film, but a specific category. So congrats on Best Screenwriter. Thank you very much. Before we get into the movie, I want to talk a little bit about you, get to know you a little bit. What's your background in filmmaking? And specifically, what was your first movie making experience? Um... Would you believe my first film was done uh, when I was 16? Really? And, yeah. <laughs> and I haven't seen a short film when I shot my own short film. Oh. All we had were full-length films, uh, those coming from Hollywood and those coming from uh, the mainstream Philippines. Other than that, I've been reading books on film, and those were my sort of guides. So my first film was 
kind of fun. I mean, we're totally experimenting with with everything. <laughs> it was I shot it with my classmates when I was in first year college or second year college. What was it about? Um, the film is about, it's actually very experimental, but the story would be a woman trying to reparate from her sins because she accidentally killed a neighbor. So it's really not a murder, but it's actually uh, trying to play on conscience. Okay. It's called Holy. It's called, it's called Holy? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, it's a, it's a, it has a, a Filipino title, Imbanal, but in English it's Holy. Well, what things in your life, as you're working through writing and even directing, what other kind of things influence the kind of stories that you do write? As a filmmaker, I really, really like to create stories about imagination or things that doesn't really happen. I mean, there are filmmakers who are very good in social realism, and maybe I should give that to them. But the things I write usually are about fantasies or or sci-fi or or anything that I have to create a world in. Perhaps it tries to mirror the present or current world, but at the same time, it gives me so much imagination to work on. And the issues that I actually write and the stories I write reflect my hometown. I come from Iloilo City. I'm based in Manila, but I come from a very beautiful city. And we have mystical stories, we have folklores. And uh, most of my films are actually very mystical. It speaks about the place. Um, we have beautiful nature. We have beautiful beaches. It speaks about the sea. And we have lots of stories, local stories in our islands. You, I can talk to you a whole day about it. But, but basically, the messages I'd like to talk about are struggles which are not usually talked about in other films. Personal struggles, specific problems. Sometimes these are problems we miss to see or we think it's just trivial, but actually very important to very specific people, neglected people. So as you're working through these stories, does that affect the way in which you film it, whether it's through animation or through you know, black and white versus color, that kind of thing? So are those things that you think about as you're writing your stories, like how it would look visually on the screen? Yes, because all my films, I'm also the cinematographer. I, I started with that because when, when you're an independent filmmaker, especially coming from Philippines or Asia, we work personally. I mean, we work on our own. And sometimes if we don't have budget and we start with that, so we shoot our own films. And what comes to mind when I write is I really have to visualize it first. So sometimes the storyboard comes first before I write. So it's a case-to-case -case basis, but I draw. So I really make it look like a comic book first, and then I put them into words. And the hard thing is that I have to put it into two other languages because I have to write in my language, and then I have to translate it in English. So it has that kind of factor in mind because it's really hard to release a film without English subtitles. And sometimes I also subtitle them in other languages like Spanish or French, but it depends on which market I try to market the film. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's got to be challenging to say the least. I mean, being from, <laughs> it is. Being from the it States, is. I mean, I'm always about like, oh, it's just English. That's fine. You know, <laughs> I don't have to worry about translating it to, to another language. <laughs> Though it's not really a problem. English is a second language in the Philippines. I mean, everybody's here. So the, the trick is that you have to have the art of subtitling because it's another monster. It's a different kind of monster. 
I mean, you write a script, but subtitling in English is a different thing. You have to choose the right words. You have to choose the the shorter words or to make it more accessible to, to the audiences. You can't make it so long. Right. Things can literally get lost in translation through subtitles where a, a word would mean something so powerful in a native language, but in English it translates to, you know, bird. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially the jokes. That's why I, I refuse to subtitle comedies. I, I don't do comedies a lot because it's really hard to come up with jokes in English where the locals would laugh out loud and foreigners would just say, what happened? <laughs> so it's hard. For sure. Well, I noticed that on this entry, you were both the writer and the director for it. And uh, that's got to be a monumental thing. I, I respect anybody that can wear many hats and still pull off a successful story. What are those challenges and advantages of both writing and directing a project that you're working on? Well, for one thing, you don't have to fight with a writer. I mean, <laughs> I fight with myself. <laughs> I have control of my material. That's true. And the creative battles are already erased, so I, I get to battle with myself. Another thing, there are things that I don't need to write specifically because I need to just shoot immediately. Sometimes it's in my head already because uh, I write, I write them down, but I don't need to be very specific on things. So when I'm on set, I just have that script with very few words and I shoot them using the storyboard. Um, it's funny because I've been saying storyboard, but, but this film was not storyboarded. It's really written in words. Because my idea was when we arrive at the sea, I don't need to change the storyboard because sometimes, and I'm sure you agree with me, when we filmmakers go to the location, everything changes when you have not seen it yet. Absolutely. So when you arrive in the area and it depends on the clouds, it depends on the waves, it depends on how beautiful the sky is. So the shots change depending on the background, especially with this kind of script that I'm talking about, nature, talking about the sea, talking about the stories of the mermaids and the, the merfolks. So it's very, very important that, that I write it and I direct it because sometimes I cannot really put into words what I have in my mind. Right. It's hard to put words. <laughs> yeah, I, I get a chance, sometimes when I get a chance to do short films, when we're constrained by location or by resources, it can definitely change the story. And one of the challenges is if you have a comedy or you have a drama to not necessarily let the location or those things dictate what you're trying to do, but let them work in conjunction with what you're trying to do. And that sounds like that's what you're doing. Yes, because I feel this material talks about nature, talks about what's different from us, talks about mysterious places. So it's very important for me to be very organic, if that's the word to use, so that I'm, in, I'm attuned to the environment that I shoot on. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the story, if you can. I know it's you've given a little bit of a hint of, of things that are in it, but overall, what's mm. the story about? Just a, a little background. I shot this four years ago. <laughs> I haven't released it yet. And I released it during the pandemic. So the world premiere, it's at Cyber Shorts Film Festival. The story is about the three kids. It's actually the memory of, of the male character who's now grown up, who's now experiencing uh, a plague in their town. And the, he tries to look back on their memories as children. 
And there was one memory and just one particular day when they saw something. I really can't say that, <laughs> but they saw something that changed their lives forever. And and that's the that's the thing that the film tries to to explore. Basically, they were seeing mermaids, they were seeing merfolks, but this is children. This is quite different because all the characters are children, and the one narrating the story is a is a grown up, and he's looking back and he's trying to see what they have done to the world, what they have done to the, the places that they have actually lived in. So it's more of a reflection of how we people, how we affect other people. Because sometimes we, we get to be very aggressive when, when we meet people that are quite different from us. You know, I'm sure you know that patch with, with all this happening in America. So it's the message of the film is really touching on diversity without being very literal about it. The mermaids and merfolks are actually those people that are quite different from us. And that's the story I want to explore. What have we done to them? Where have they gone? It is us who should make them come back and live with us because we can actually live a very harmonious life. I mean, that's that's basically the, the message and the story. Well, it's a good message. And I think that you're right in the time that we're living in, it's definitely poignant to be able to express that. And I think what you're what you're doing well is what a lot of screenwriters and directors and creative people are doing with regard to that type of genre, fantasy and sci-fi, is wrapping up a message in a way that the story itself is entertaining, but there's also a subtle message that exists that leaves you thinking about what the message is saying. And I think that you're doing that pretty effectively in this story. Thank you. It's difficult also to do that. <laughs> when, when you're writing, I really don't like to lecture. So there's really no mention of direct talk about nature or environment. But but at the last part, uh, there's like a portion where I mentioned that we should not pain people who are different from us or, or something to that effect. Was this inspired by any particular event or is this just kind of something that your heart's been working through uh, or where did the inspiration come from? I really like stories that talks about hypothetical events like what happens if this happens to us? What will happen to us if we have plagues? Because Philippines is, is very unpredictable, especially the weather. So I, I tend to connect the human beings with environments. Because we truly, truly have something to do with what's happening around us. And uh, if we don't take care of things, it actually goes back to haunt us. It's retribution time. So the, my films are usually about that apocalypse or, or things happening, strange things happening. And there must be realization and there must be hope in the story because I think the whole idea of uh, something very unpredictable or something that's really hard to imagine or hard to predict gives you hope. And I think that's a very important element in storytelling. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's important to be able to digest stories that don't have that. But as a as a filmmaker myself, I want to make sure that if I do something that's important, I want to leave an element of hope and not really arbitrary or not really like yeah. a, a nice yeah. little bow, but yeah. Yeah. something that leaves you going, things could get better. They may not, but yes. they could. And yes. um, I mean, there's there's value to leaving things kind of on a dirty floor. 
but there's also value of leaving things on a dirty <laughs> floor next to a broom that might have an opportunity to, to clean things up. So I, I think I think that's a fantastic approach to to filmmaking. What kind of influences do you have that contribute to that ideology? Are there directors and writers that have influenced that kind of mentality, or has this just been all you? Oh, definitely not all me. I think artists always get inspiration from everywhere. I have lots of directors. I don't have lists or favorites, but there are some in mind. We have very good Filipino directors like Eddie Romero or Ishmael Bernal or Mike DeLeon. Too bad um, they're not really popular in other places, but they have very good films. Peke Galiaga, Nick Diocampo. These are Filipino filmmakers. I used to have this book patch, which I bought for only six pesos. So that's like a dime from, from a bookstore. It's called Introduction to American Underground Films. That became a Bible when I was very young. So I was interested to see those films and it took me decades to, to be able to see those. And then I also like films by David Cronenberg, Abbas Kerostami from Iran, Christoph Pitslovsky from Poland, I guess. Jane Campion from Australia. Ang Lee. Alfonso Cuaron. Ozu, Japan. Fellini. I can, I can go on and on. Sorry. <laughs> David Lynch. John Waters is fun. I mean, Steven Soderbergh. I mean, I'm just saying those things that comes to mind. I mean, sure, sure. I don't have a list, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cineast, so I, I watch at least two films per day. <laughs> That's, yeah, I wish I could do that. I just, <laughs> it's such a, such a great thing. <laughs> a habit, I guess, before sleeping. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, do what you got to do, right? It's, you know, what are you currently working on right now? Do you have any other projects that are in the works? Cause I know you said this is one that you actually worked on a few years ago and you just now got it released. Have you been working yeah. on things in the meantime? Yes, I'm, I'm finishing because now I can't get out because I'm so afraid. I have two films finishing. Um, it's called Night Dew in the Eye, like the morning dew, Night Dew in the Eye, and Fragment. Those are two full-length films. I've shot them already. They're, they're done. I'm doing the post-production inside my condominium. I am shooting a film inside my bathroom. I've been shooting okay. for 12 days. Okay. My concern actually was... Oh my God, I'm going to look like crap in, in front of the camera <laughs> because I haven't shaved. And, and, and thank God, this is podcast, so I don't, you don't need to see me. Um, but I'm, I've been shooting for almost 12 days now, shooting alone. It's about um, a man trapped inside uh, his own house because he can't get out because of the, the air has, has changed and the air is uh, making people cannibals. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> And there's one project that, that was cut off, I mean, because of the pandemic. It's a historical project from my hometown. So I wasn't able to go home because I was supposed to finish it last April. Unfortunately, we have this. And now we can't shoot with crowds. And historical films have crowds and soldiers. And, you know, so I may have to shove that off until next year. So those are the four things I'm doing. <laughs> well, you've got the bathroom film, so that should keep you busy until the pandemic ends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> well, real quick before we finish up, we, we like to ask this of all of our, our guests. Um, as you know, Feeling Film, or if you don't know, it's a podcast that focuses on the emotional takeaway of, of films. And we always like to ask anyone we interview, is there a movie, a particular film out there that you resonate with pretty emotionally 
above most others? Yes. I mean, I don't have an, a favorite film, but if you're going to kill me, maybe I'll mention Naked Lunch by David Cronenberg. I mean, it's not very emotional film, but I think that's the beauty of it because there's so much emotions. Like It's a mixed bag of emotions. Sometimes we don't understand what I'm seeing and I have to see it again and again, but it really resonates. It's I can't get it out of my mind. It's It's something very personal. The story is very personal to, to William Burroughs and David, but it's also, it struck a chord in me. Maybe it tries to speak my mind because if you go inside my brain, there's like so many things happening. So that film encapsulates what I think inside without explaining my myself to the world. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. No, it, it, it totally does. I think that that's a common thing with films that resonate with us they don't have to necessarily be overtly emotional but they sure. they connect with us on a deep level in some way either because of a personal tragedy or a personal triumph or something that we are emotionally attached to films give us that opportunity to kind of feel like oh that's how i would express myself on screen and i think that's the beauty of a film is that it helps translate pieces of us for us in a way that yeah. i think we can connect with Plus, I see images that I haven't seen before. So I see creatures that, that I wish I could have coffee with. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, think, I think I like imagination and sometimes I like not to be fed with too much information so I could discover things by myself. Very cool, Albert. Well, where can people find you if they want to find out more about what you're doing? Are you on social media anywhere? Do you have any uh, a website or anything that you can uh, plug so that people can uh, find you? Um, I'm on Vimeo, so they can just type my name, and I think they can also Google me. I, I guess I haven't tried that. Yet, so <laughs> can, and not all my films are online, though, because usually when we join festivals, they kind of have that kind of privilege to show it like a premiere. So most of my new films, new works, are not online. But we have, I have old films, and I have the trailers of some of my works. Okay, fantastic. We appreciate you coming on, and uh, this has been a fantastic conversation, Albert. I appreciate that uh, everything that you've shared. The uh, pleasure is all mine, Patch, and uh, extend my regards to Aaron. I'd like to thank Stephen Schwartz and uh, Daryl and Shahab for, for this great opportunity, and I was just looking forward to talk to you. <laughs> I didn't want to be overprepared, so I just said, I just converse. That's it. Thank that's, you. <laughs> that's, that's what makes interviews great. It's just a conversation. So thanks for joining us, man. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Up next, Georgia Harder joins us to talk about her film, Not Your Bible, which took home the Best Director Award. Hi, Georgia. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations. Thank you. Now, before we get into your film, I wanted to talk a little bit about you and really about your filmmaking history, experience, yeah, so I'm I'm pretty new to the game for sure. Not Your Bible was the first project that I've ever really worked on. My first like legit production, I guess you could say. I did it for a school project in a video production class. Jesse Pino, the artist of behind the song, he is a good friend of mine and I was a big fan of his music and I asked if I could use his song to make my first music video and he was super cool with that, gave me a lot of control, total freedom really, which was an awesome first experience to not have to 
fit to a client's needs or, or standards or anything like that. Super supportive of my vision. And yeah, we didn't really have a budget or anything. So we had to get super creative with our constraints. And there were plenty of them. The energy I really wanted to try to create was this kind of eerie, empty, lifeless energy. But we didn't have any money to rent any spaces or anything like that. So in public places, we're filming and waiting for enough people to clear from the frame before we could get our shot. So we had to be super creative with this first project, which pushed me to learn a lot. Um, I've since done a couple videos, but I'm I'm really I'm pretty new to to filmmaking for sure. So with regard to the stuff that you're doing now, are you strictly limiting yourself to just videos or are you diving into like short films or even possible features? I have directed a few music videos at this point now. I haven't had a chance to direct a short film yet. I have a small project coming up. It's a little too soon to talk about that. But I'm also, my bigger project, I'm executively producing and starring in a short film called Lover's Lane that we recently raised over $10,000 to make. Wow. Um, so that's my big focus right now is that project. But yeah, doing shorts and music videos, that's where I spend most of my time for sure. Well, well, that's good. That's a good place to spend your time. <laughs> With those kinds of things happening right now and having the music videos kind of under your belt, do you have a preference? Are you gravitating towards one or the other? Like if someone said, here's a music video and here's a short film, what would you actually put your time and energy into first? Um, that's tough to say. I, I definitely am more comfortable doing music videos just because I'm so used to working with shoestring budgets. And so I haven't really had a lot of experience doing like writing dialogue and, and doing the more complex things that come with doing an entire short film. But it's a challenge that I'm definitely up to and I'm excited to attempt for sure when that time comes. <laughs> Well, when the video came out, or when, when you created the music video, you mentioned before that it was inspired by the song, obviously. So you're listening to the song, and of course, Jesse gave you complete control over the, the visual expression of that. So it sounds like you heard the song first, and then the video came after, which I think would make sense, because most of the time when you're promoting a song, usually you do a video to promote that, as opposed to going backwards. Were there any other influences around kind of how you came up with the story or how you decided to shoot it besides having kind of finite resources at your disposal? Totally. Yeah. I talked to Jesse early on about his thoughts about the song, of course, and his inspiration behind the song. One of the things that we talked about doing is making it more intentionally kind of vague, hoping that people would watch it more than once. Like I said, Jesse and I had been friends and I was a big fan of his music before we'd ever met. And we were in a relationship for a little while, and we've been close friends ever since. And this song, I had always been one of my favorites from him. It was written before I had known him, but I found myself really identifying with the subject of the song. And so I wanted to kind of explore this idea of writing from the subject's perspective mm. and exploring this idea of, of like this obsession that our culture has with other 
artists and feeling like their work is really personal to us, despite them not knowing anything of our existence, right? We often really connect to art and feel like it was made just for us. So that's kind of what I really wanted to focus on with the video and this feeling of putting expectations on other people, hoping that they'll kind of change and realizing you don't really have any control over other people. So yeah, those are kind of the things I wanted to focus on and doing it in a way that was visually appealing. Well, those definitely came out when I watched the video. It's interesting because when we got the the list of the award winners, it was surprising in a good way that two of them were actual music videos. And I never really thought of looking at music videos in a cinematic kind of way. So this gave me an opportunity to look at it and say, you know what, there are stories that are told in music videos. Obviously, they're inspired by the songs that accompany them, but even the way in which they're shot can evoke a certain kind of feeling. And it looked as though the way in which you shot it was very intentional to kind of support what it was that that you were trying to evoke in terms of a message and that kind of emotion. So I think you did did a really good job with it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, my team is really, we're really into narratives and telling a story. So for us, when we take on a music video, that's kind of where our head's at. And we often try to incorporate the performance of the band into the narrative as opposed to just cutting between, you know, making it all work into a seamless story. So that's a big priority for us, for sure. Tell me about the other couple of videos that you've been working on. Were they ones that you handpicked or were because of what people had seen with this one or with some of your other work, were you approached by other artists to say, hey, can you bring my song to life? Yeah. So um, the other one that I'll mention was also part of the same festival. It was the Ideas music video by the band Bad Phantom, which is another Vegas band. And I approached them as well. They were going to be going on tour through the Northwest. And I asked if they would allow me to make a video for this song as well. I find that when I approach a band with an offer, it allows me to have a little bit more control in the process and offering my ideas to them as opposed to a client coming to me, which I'm willing to accept also (laughs) all future clients. (laughs) But yeah, it's a different scenario when I have an idea and I approach a band and ask if they're willing to collaborate with me on a project as opposed to hiring me for a project. That was the case with this other music video that also made it into the festival. Are these songs that inspire you, that you kind of have ideas in your head that allow you to approach these bands? I know that every song is different. Like every song evokes something different. Even the genre can change the way in which you feel about a particular song. Do you have kind of a personal criteria about what you want to do with the songs that you have? Or do you gravitate towards certain styles? I would say that definitely I, of course, like to talk with the artist first and find out their inspiration behind the song. And of course, that plays a major role in what we decide. But I think we're really inspired by surrealism. Surrealism is like a really conducive to uh, working on a budget. It's very budget friendly and encourages us to come up with really creative solutions. And so I think the more surreal visual style always comes through in artwork. So we like to take a concept and talk about it amongst ourselves and come up with uh, visuals that represent that idea in kind of a creative and expressive way. Yeah. Do you have the same team that you've worked with for all of your projects? Do you have a core group of people that you're with? 
I do have a pretty core. It, it varies, but um, my cinematographer, Christopher Hawkins, that I worked with on this project, Not Your Bible, it was pretty much on most shoots, it was just me, Christopher, and the actress, Ayla Welfare, walking around in all these public places. <laughs> He's amazing. So I, I often work with him. But yeah, it's pretty much the same core team that is also working on our big project, Lover's Lane. That's great. That's great. I guess that adds a level of comfort and trust, being able to know what kind of talent you're getting whenever you uh, you start putting a project together. Absolutely. Having that trust is huge. And I pride myself on being a very collaborative director and planning stuff as much as possible, but being really open to people on sets ideas and leaving time for improv and experimenting and, and trying stuff. Specifically, working with a cinematographer that you really trust with Not Your Bible, it was really important because we were working under these conditions that we had really no control over. Like, for example, in the laundromat, this was a Thursday evening in a laundromat that was very popular, and we tried to go at it off time. But of course, there's people around doing laundry, and it's really awesome to be able to work with a cinematographer that has a good instinct to reframe, recompose in real time and have really good intuition. So that's for sure a big priority for me. I'm sure that, that obviously helps with the overall project itself. With that in mind, do you have a particular challenge as a director that you face or that you kind of know is going to come at some point in the project? Like what kind of challenges do you face as a director? Are there anything that stand out to you from a directing standpoint? I would say the biggest, I don't know that this doesn't necessarily reflect on me as a director, but the biggest challenge for me working as a an up-and-coming filmmaker is working with extremely small budgets and often not being able to pay people really at all or adequately and having to <laughs> be kind of like a hype man of the group and encourage right. people to keep pressing forward and yeah. committing to the project. I think in the ideal world, eventually I will get to a place where I can have a big enough budget that I can hire a really passionate person for each of the roles mm -hmm. on set and somebody that really cares so much about the thing that they're doing, as opposed to having a really small team that has to wear like several different hats all the time, juggling stuff. So that that's kind of the biggest challenge for me as an indie filmmaker is, is the budget yeah. and working around that. But it also helps, you know, it, it pushes you to be really creative. Absolutely. So yeah, I've been told that the best kinds of projects are the ones that are the cheapest and hardest to make <laughs> because they force that creativity. Totally. Well, a couple of more questions before we finish up. As we are a podcast that focuses on how movies make us feel, we try to, when we can, ask the people that we interview if there is a movie out there, one film that they emotionally resonate with the most. Is there one for you? Do you have one of those? I love movies so much, and I am constantly <laughs> being moved by them all the time. So... Yes, there's a million. One that sticks out to me the most, my favorite of the year so far for sure, ha uh, is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm. I don't know if you saw that, the French mm. film. Um, so beautiful. I really have, I'm going out of my way to watch more films made by women. And this film is so beautiful. It, the camera is so sensitive and empathetic to these female characters. And it's such a small scale of a story, but it's really powerful. And it really takes its time. And I was totally blown away by that one for sure. It's a powerful film for sure. And one of the best of, I would 
I guess it's 2019 officially. Like I know it released. True. It released for us common folk in 2020, but it was on the Oscar list. So I guess it was technically a 2019 movie, but right. And we need more of that in 2020 with the way things are. I mean, 2020 needs to just reset and give us a lot better films to make us feel good. So yeah. <laughs> and and I, I, it's also, I think in this time, really important to watch films that educate us. Like another one that really, that I was also thinking about when you asked that is, is the documentary 13th, which I all, I just recently watched. David DeVernay, another female director. Yeah. Yeah, another female director is super relevant during this anti-racist Black Lives Matter movement. If you've seen if you haven't seen it, it's about the prison industrial complex and it's super powerful and definitely educated me on things that I should have known sooner. But it's important to watch stuff like that as a as a media creator myself. It's really important for me to educate myself and be really responsible with what I make and what I create and what I say and do. So watching more films like that, ones that make me feel good, but also ones that challenge me. And they can both very important. And they can both be the one and the same. Right? So Absolutely. Yep. The Hate You Give, I think, was one of those movies for me that both made me feel and taught me a lot about some you know, thoughts and ideas that I needed to, to wrestle with. And uh, those are those are important films. Absolutely. 100%. So before I let you go, do you have a social media presence? Where can people find you to find out more about what you're doing, the films you're making, and generally get in touch with you if they want to pay you to do some stuff? Yeah, pay me. <laughs> um, the My Instagram is call, is call underscore me underscore Atlanta. And my film that I was mentioning beforehand, Lover's Lane, you can follow that at Lover's Lane Film on Instagram. Yeah, I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> Fantastic, Georgia. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We love talking with you and uh, good luck with what you're doing. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Bye. Finally, the Best Picture winners of the Cyber Shorts Film Festival, director Danny Chandia and producer Rachel Johnson, join us to talk about their film, Violet Water. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much us. for having us. So before we get into your film, I wanted to kind of get to know you guys a little bit. Uh, what experience do you guys have in filmmaking? Is this your first? Is this like your 50th? And uh, and if you're veterans at this, what kind of uh, filmmaking experience have you had? Well, we've uh, we just recently started our own production company. Well, we've been doing this for a while. Uh, I come from an editing background, so I've done a lot of freelance editing here in Vegas. And she actually comes from a film school background. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I graduated from UNLV in 2012 in broadcast journalism and film as my majors. And then, like Danny mentioned, we just started our own production company this last August called Desert Cactus Films. Uh, so Violent Water is one of the second music videos we've done within that production company. So what was your first movie making experience and, uh, and what was that like? Well, I, I've been doing it since I was a kid. You know, I used to make home videos with my action figures in my room kind of doing kind of backwards way doing stop motion you know you just hit record and, and stop in quick succession and then you just do that over and over until you break your camera and end up with something halfway watchable and it's funny you should tell them how we met yeah yeah so we met uh, in college he was actually on my very first 48 hour film project that i did in college uh, it was a zombie film that we made and he was a zombie extra in it so that's kind of how we connected the film uh, and then, you know, my prior background, I have a lot of leadership experience, so I've done a lot of management roles, so that kind of uh, translated pretty well into going into producing. But yeah, zombie films bringing people together, I guess. <laughs> uh, they usually do, or, you know, the uh, the spy 
genre too. I've I've done several 48 hour films and have not gotten the zombie genre just yet or the apocalypse. I don't know if that's a genre. Yeah. But very familiar and and you're and you're exactly right. It bring, I mean the connections I've made through that have been because of just the weird kind of like what are we going to put together and uh, going from being like an extra to the writer to director. It's it's such a great experience um and I was telling someone previously that it's great to have that because it allows you to recognize how to get rid of stuff and how to add stuff and how to really be efficient in your in the filmmaking process. It's also really crazy because you're having to do all that stuff in 2 days, but it can be a lot of fun, a lot of Absolutely. stress, but and more often than not the movies that come out are pretty bad, but they're a lot of fun to watch. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, the movie wasn't good, but still fun to make so we learned a lot for sure for sure for sure so coming from a, a filmmaking background danny in terms of you know doing this since you were a kid what things influenced you in the kind of movies that you're making now or that you you made early on oh it's it's all pretty typical i mean um uh star wars really star wars indiana jones and uh watching a lot of stuff on vhs I was growing up around the time when the special editions of the original trilogy were coming out. And I remember on those tapes, they had a sort of behind the scenes video at the beginning of the cassette. And you would kind of see what they added for the special edition. And that's how I got introduced to like uh, John Dykstra and, and Phil Tippett and all these uh, VFX pioneers. And uh, I guess that's always been the magic aspect uh, from nothing. Right. What about you, Rachel? Are there any kind of uh, influences as a kid that that kind of uh, sparked or influenced what you're doing today? Like I mentioned before, I don't really have a specific filmmaker that has influenced me now. My background, especially before I had, you know, had an interest in filmmaking, was costume design. So that kind of translated too, because all the costumes that were in Violent Water, like the mermaids and everything was for all the sailors and the ghosts were all thrifted and made by myself. So it wasn't so much an of filmmaking prior was more about fashion design and so it was kind of really cool to combine those two again in the producing aspect and then being able to make all the costumes for this music video we also didn't have a costume designer too so you know that 48 hour filmmaking mentality of like hey you got to get it done so you might as well do it yourself you know what i mean right how long did it take you guys to shoot the video well it was a little bit spread out how many shooting days would you say well, shooting days is tough because we, the ghost and the sailors, and of course, Sonia and Tom, who was our main sailor, were all shot separately. So if I had to guess, a combination, it would probably have been about two to maybe two and a half weeks. Yeah. But from conception, we started talking about the music video in October of 2018. And after talking with Sonia Barcelona, who's the artist, she had an idea around Violent Water. And so she, she did a Kickstarter fund so that she could get the funds necessary to be able to produce the video. So we fully met our Kickstarter goal in December of 2018. And then it was probably, you know, I think we were wrapping on production by about April. So uh, four months, really, was the main chunk of it. And, um, and did the inspiration, obviously it came from Sonia's song, but how much creative input did, did you guys have in terms of crafting out the style, the, the narrative itself? beyond just what the lyrics were kind of being interpreted as? Well, she, she really had just one request and she just wanted to be uh, a mermaid. So that was, that was like baseline. Okay, fine. Well, we're going to, we're going to make you a mermaid. And at the time I was watching a lot of old silent films, George Melies. I don't know if you know, he's a wizard. 
he actually comes from a magician's background. So he pioneered a lot of these techniques like double exposure, where you can basically make a ghost appear on screen, or you can do a, a jump cut where somebody suddenly disappears in a puff of smoke. So I've been watching a lot of that and I wanted to bring that to the music video because I figured what is a music video if not an excuse to make a short film set to music. So how does that differ in terms of your approach and maybe the prep from actually putting together a short film? Obviously, both have a narrative, but one is driven by music and lyrics, whereas another is driven by script and actors and whatnot. So do you guys approach that differently? Well, I would say our music videos are much more dependent on the storyboards and the animatics. The animatics kind of become the, the Bible that we go off of. And so we had the entire music video sort of planned out, timed to the music before we even set foot in front of a green screen. So what about the style itself? It's very unique, to say the least. And obviously, Sonia wanted to be a mermaid. So I know that had to have some influence in terms of how you styled it. But still, we're talking about what looks like almost like paper stop animation kind of look here. Was there a reason why you chose that? Was it to kind of conform to what she wanted? Or were you trying to do something visually to, to accent the, the song? I mean, I think it was a combination of both. Like we knew that based on our budgetary constraints, we weren't going to have anything that was going to be super photo real, but we still wanted to have the ability of bringing this, creating a world. Creating a world. You know, Danny was talking about George Méliès before, and he kind of put it within the framework of, what did George Méliès had the techniques that we have now in modern society versus what he had, you know, when he first started doing effects in the early 20th century? So in a nutshell, a lot of these silent films, when you put them alongside the movies that we have now, they feel a little bit more stale, a little bit more theatrical, right? And I'm trying to be nice about it because it really is, it's its own kind of endearing style, but it, it comes from the vaudeville background. So a lot of these silent films, they're done mostly in a wide, and you're essentially just looking at actors on a stage. And the, the sets are painted, you know, there may be moving pieces, there may be giant puppets and things like that, but it's mostly done within this very sort of early sense of camera work. You just put the camera in front of the stage and you play the scene. Uh, George Melies, I don't know if you know, but he, he quit making movies at the start of World War One. He threw in the towel and he burned actually a lot of his own personal prints. That's why so many of his films are lost now. Wow. But it was sort of this what if question. What if he had kept making movies? And what if he had started to adopt the techniques that were being developed by other filmmakers at the time? You know, the close-up. The close-up was a, was a revolution in filmmaking. The, the tracking shot, time lapses, things like that. So it was sort of based on what would George Melies' style look like had he kept going on another 10 years, another 20 years. Uh, and that's sort of how we approached it. Is that something that you want to continue to do in terms of future projects, whether they're music videos or short films, is to apply and kind of advance that technique that he's inspired? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like realism is kind of overrated. Uh, <laughs> I feel like if you, can, if you can just get an audience to believe your world, then you don't need to have an incredible budget to tell your story. You can build a world that's handmade, that, that feels textured and, uh, you know, imperfect. So, yeah, I, I want to keep doing that because I feel like that's something that filmmakers need to remember, you know? It's not just about... Having a really expensive camera. Right, or, it's not yeah. just about being seamless. It's about building your world, telling your story, and, and getting people to believe it. 
Absolutely. And I think that's what kind of opens up the world of sci-fi and fantasy, because now that you've gotten somebody to believe your world, now you can embed a message or a story that people can attach themselves to. I think that's what was so great about Gene Roddenberry is I fell in love with Star Trek The Next Generation because I loved the individual stories, the characters and whatnot. But underneath all that was that great social commentary that is in the same vein as Rod Serling in The Twilight Zone. I mean, it's all those things. <laughs> and, and I love seeing how that's advanced. And it sounds like in terms of a stylistic type of approach, you want to advance that kind of thing. And and ask those what if questions. And I think that's pretty fantastic from a, a filmmaking standpoint because it opens you up to new ideas that either the technique inspires a story or the story inspires the technique. I know that some of the Philip K. Dick movies that were done with uh, rotoscoping wouldn't have been as effective if they had just been done in realism type of style. So I think that's pretty fantastic what you're doing. Thank you. So you guys are, you got a history of, of filmmaking does the feeling of seeing your work on the big screen ever change? Like, do you, are you, does it feel just like the first time each time you see something that you've created for the first time on, on the big screen? When we eventually finish a project, we've seen it so much yeah. that we're kind of just sick of watching it. I'd rather <laughs> be sitting at the front of the theater looking at the audience. Right. You know, right. that's what I'm really excited for when I'm watching it with an audience is to see the reactor. So with regard to your directing, has there been a piece of advice that you've held on to thus far that you're like, yep, that's something I'm going to keep with me through every project that I work on? I guess one that comes to mind would be um, Paul Thomas Anderson has uh, an interesting piece of advice that he gives about always having something on your plate, you know, always having some ideas sort of on, on the back burner, ready to go. He never wants to face a blank page when he finishes with another project. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't want to just put something out and then oh, I'm back to having no ideas. I got to start from scratch again. And that feeling, certainly, especially when you're writing, facing the blank page, I don't know if there's any worse feeling. So that, that has always kind of stuck with me. You know, always have something that you're thinking of that you've got in mind. What uh, kind of projects are you guys working on right now that are in the works that are filling up that blank page. Yeah, yeah. So it was really awesome to be able to take Violent Water uh, through some of the film festival circuits, uh, especially this last year, because we got to see it in, in different places. And, and, you know, to see that uh, that particular style isn't necessarily being, in being done right now. And so we wanted to conceptualize something where we can bring the style of Violent Water, but bring it into a much larger narrative sense. So actually, we are working on a short film right now that's called Margaret Brave. Uh, and I mean, if you want to talk a little bit about it and yeah, I feel like this is kind of the, the, the way that we've contextualized it for the actors and crew that we brought onto the project. It's sort of the story structure of the princess bride. That's probably the most basic way to explain it. It starts in the real world, you know, and we've shot that stuff already with our main actors, a, a father and his daughter. Father tells a story and then we go into what is going to be a violent water style fairy tale. So that we'll be able to sort of balance the visual effects that we've been doing, you know, so far in these music videos with a more straightforward live action narrative. Very cool. So tell me a bit about the production company. What caused it to come to fruition? Was it because you just had a lot of people involved that you wanted to officially make it its own thing? Or does it have a particular kind of genre style that you're going to try to promote through it? 
I, I definitely think paying homage to older pioneers of cinema is, is definitely going to be something we want to continue to do with, uh, with, this production. with this production company. You know, with with Violent Water and a prior project music video we did called Noose, uh, we were bringing some of those stop motion elements, those puppetry elements that you may not see as much anymore. Not to say that they're not being used, but there is something about utilizing practical means of storytelling and practical, uh, you know, effects. effects. Yeah, uh, just showing that you can do a lot with not much. I mean, yeah. again, realism is overrated and you have all the tools at your fingertips now. So, For sure. For sure. Well, I think that's a fantastic approach. And I think it inspires younger filmmakers who feel like they don't have enough blank money, resources, people, whatever. It's really coming down to the creativity of the individual or of the group to say, okay, what can we do with what we have? So a couple other questions before I let you go. First of all, is there anything in filmmaking from a producing standpoint or directing or writing that you haven't done that you're just itching to do? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I definitely want to be, myself and Danny have been kind of all of the department heads because uh, from the nature of having those lack of resources. So it would be nice to have a, you know, a full-scale art department, be able to work with post-production and not have to have Danny rely on being the editor and the visual effects artist, which and is, the color artist. and the color, you know, and, and doing the coloring, you know, uh, you know, a goal of mine for me working on like a million dollar budget and then continuing those budgetary levels and just kind of graduating and working my way up, you know, as a producer, I think that would be something really ideal. That's something I'm looking forward to doing in the next few years. Yeah, I think it's funny you were, you were talking about Star Trek. If there is anything that kind of floats my boat that I want to really get into, it's more genre filmmaking. You know, I feel like sci-fi, horror, and westerns are such great avenues for telling contemporary stories in a non-contemporary setting, you know, these, I mean, if you want to call them moralistic, you could call them moralistic. They're symbolic of what we go through right now as a society. So I feel like sci-fi and particularly Westerns, I feel like is something I would want to try to tell a, a modern story through. All right. So on our show, Feeling Film, we connect with the emotional side of, of movies. And what we like to ask all of our interviewees before they go is, is there one film that you emotionally resonate with more than any other? So we'll pick pick who wants to go first, but I want to hear from both of you. Oh my gosh. I guess I can go. Um, I think more so lately, just bringing out that emotional response. Me and Danny are really big on what we call, we've dubbed the term movie therapy. Uh, basically meaning like, if you're feeling sad, you know, what type of movie can you watch? Or if you're feeling happy, like what does that look like? And so... For the inspiration, especially in, you know, a pandemic, the life that we live in right now, how to keep things, you know, positive and inspiring. Uh, we were just watching, uh, it's a musical called The Bandwagon, and it has, you know, Fred Astaire in it. And, and basically, it's just, he has a keen understanding that his time as an artist may be coming to an end. But that movie just shows that if you just keep pushing, if you just keep, you know, the happiness and I don't know. It just encapsulates something that brings this emotional response. Uh, and every time I watch it, I can't help but smile and, you know, enjoy each and every scene that I'm watching and, and enjoy the, the filmmaking aspect of it because uh, they're putting on a stage play within the movie. So, yeah, if I had to pick one, one film right now that I resonate with, it'd definitely be The Bandwagon. Yeah, I feel like my pick would be a film that I'm definitely more invested in as of late. John Borman's Excalibur. If for anybody who doesn't know the legend of King Arthur, 
it's your greatest hits. You know, you got King Arthur, you got uh, the Sword in the Stone, the Round Table, uh, Merlin, Merlin yeah. um, absolutely the Holy Grail. You have everything there, and it's just such a well done myth on film. I, I very much I get my lifeblood from that right now. That's great. Yeah. That's really great. It's been it's been years since I've seen it, but I remember really enjoying it when I watched it. Well, this has been great, you guys. I appreciate you coming on and talking about the music video and what you guys are doing. Where can people go to find you and and what you're up to with your company and where can they find you on social media? Yeah, um, we are on Instagram at Desert Cactus Films. uh, And we also have a website, uh, desertcactusfilms.com. And you can find us on there. Fantastic. All right, be sure to check that out, guys. And um, Danny and Rachel, we appreciate you guys coming on. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. Appreciate it. And that will do it for this edition of FF Plus. Once again, thanks to Daryl, Elvert, Georgia, Danny, and Rachel for coming on to talk about the inaugural Cyber Shorts Film Festival, as well as the best of films that came out of it. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. But be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.